All right, I want you to find uh, 1 Corinthians 9, if you would, please. I had the privilege of growing up going to church. Maybe you did too. Uh, we went to church all the time, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. In fact, I was a public school kid, and my, uh, my middle school was a few, I was maybe a mile away from the church building. Uh, we didn't have a Christian school in our church, and uh, so my mom taught preschool at our church, so every day after I was done with my middle school, I'd walk over to the church because she was still at church doing stuff, and that was my, my normal plan. So I'd go, I'd go to church, I'd sit in my youth pastor's office and just bug him, you know, seventh and eighth grade uh, years, and I am sure I actually did just drive him crazy. He never acted like it, but I think about it later, and I think, wow, that must have driven him crazy. I remember sitting, we, his name was uh, Jerry Frank, we called him Frank, which probably isn't the most respectful thing, but... I grew up going to church. I loved church. I did. I liked being there. That was well, all my friends were from church. Even though we all went to public school, uh, still generally we went to different schools. Our peer group was it was the church group. That's who we that's who we hung out with. That that was who my friends were. So I remember growing up in church, running the halls as a kid. I remember cracking my head open when I was five, running through the halls, having to get stitches and. And, uh, boy, a lot of memories of going to church. Maybe you have memories of, of being a kid at church. Uh, just all the things you do as a kid, you know, and half of them you get spanked for and all that kind of stuff. You know? <laughs> I, remember, I remember my mom in choir giving me the evil eye because I'm up in the front row doing whatever, you know, during church. One thing I remember as a kid uh, going to church was the way that our church did offering is the ushers would come and they'd collect the offering and then they would meet in the back they would combine it all into one offering plate, and then they would walk it forward and set it on the Lord's Supper table. And uh, we don't do it quite like that here. We bring it in the back, and the armed guards take them into the church office, and we put it in the safe. But they did it, I think, just to show that there was that sense of accountability. You know, the offering didn't just go, I don't know, somewhere with two guys and, you know, whatever. Okay, so there was, they brought it forward, and there was a sense of dedication. You know, we brought the offering to the front, set it on the Lord's Supper table, and it was like, you know, this is dedicated to the Lord. And uh, there's something that's to be said for that. I think that's kind of a neat practice, okay? Um, so I remember distinctly as a kid when they would bring that offering forward wondering, now what happens to that? Because as a 4, 5, 6, 15, 16-year-old kid, I didn't understand a lot of things. Maybe more emphasis on the 4 and 5 and 6. But I would think, I know what happens to that money. After church, they go to that special room, wherever that room is, and it flies up to heaven. I am sure that's what happens. And I always wondered, what's it like, you know, to go in there and see the money just up to heaven? And God takes it. And I think I thought that for a long time. Uh, probably, probably till I was about 15 or 16. And I realized, oh, you know, man, maybe not. Um, Okay, just so you know, that's not what they did with the money. Okay, I don't think. Actually, I never asked anybody. I don't know. Maybe that is what they did with it. Okay, but now look at 1 Corinthians 9, uh, verse 13. It does say something along the lines, I told my wife I was going to bring a different Bible up here, and I didn't. So I brought my little one. No, don't do it. I'll, I'll be fine. No problem. Uh, okay, uh, verse 13. Look at this. Do ye not know? that they which minister about holy things live of the things of the temple, and they which wait at the altar are partakers with the altar. All right, now that's just an explanation of really how the, the sacrificial system worked in its very basic 
practical level that those who ministered about holy things lived to those holy things. And uh, here he's talking about in the Jewish temple. That was true across the board. Uh, not even just in, in the temple of the Lord and God's people. That'd be true of even paganism, uh, even these pagan temples. Um, the people that did the temple rituals and, and uh, I guess ministered, it feels awkward to say if you're talking about paganism, but those that did their, their duties in the temple, they lived of the temple. So whatever was sacrificed, uh, they would, that was part of their pay. That was part of how they got uh, their living. And, of course, when the offering is brought forward and it was put on the Lord's Supper table after the service, men did bring it into, a, into another room. It didn't fly, fly up into heaven. It probably was put in an envelope and deposited in the bank. And uh, I didn't realize this at the time, but that money was dedicated to God for the use of the advancing of the church ministry. Well, it makes a lot of sense, right? You know, and that's what happens here, too, just so you know. The deacons don't use it to go out for dinner. Uh, when, when they collect that money, they deposit it in the bank, and we use it to pay our bills. I know you know this, but I'm saying that is the point, that money is dedicated but then used uh, for the purposes of the church. I also kind of had this concept of, um, uh, of things like a King Kong movie. And I've never seen King Kong, but I'm picturing like this 1930s, you know, King Kong, you know what King Kong is, the big monkey, you know, the big gorilla? Do you have any idea what I'm talking about? Okay, whatever, some of you do. I, I this envision of like this giant gorilla, you know, working his way through downtown Manhattan, and the, the you know, the innocent lady strapped to the top of, the, do you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> the Empire State Building, you know, and this big gorilla, eats her, or takes her away and eats her, or whatever, you know, and then the hero comes and saves her. Don't you know what I'm talking about? I'm not making this up. Okay, that's not a true story, all right? But I, you know, that's, it. okay, so I'm trying to think why I said all that, but um, there's a little bit of that that is kind of the thought of some of the most base paganism, you know, like, like, the, like the, the gods need this sacrifice given to them, and and uh, almost like the, like the demon will eat it or so on. But, you know, even in pagan temples, what did they do with the sacrifices, the animals or whatever? They ate them. You know, they lived off of it. That was the, that was the way that you paid for all of the temple costs and expenses. All right, now you're in 9. I want you to look at chapter 8 because I want to spend time in chapter 8 talking about an issue that he identifies as things offered unto idols. And I want to preach a message that I've entitled Offensive Christianity. So let me read the first three verses while I word of prayer and then we'll look at it. It says, Now, as touching things offered unto idols, we know that we, ha we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. And if any man think that he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing, yet as he ought to know. But if any man love God... The same is known of him. All right, let's pray. Lord, help us to draw an application here from this passage. And I pray that we would ourselves be motivated by love, uh, love for others, uh, love for you, love for others. And uh, Lord, I pray that you would guide us, especially as we would look at how this would apply to our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, for starters, probably we do have to do a little bit of historical just understanding because we don't live in exactly the same culture as first century Roman world. 
And uh, you know this because you've read your New Testament and you've just learned enough to know that, that uh, pagan temples were, were very common, especially in the Mediterranean world, but frankly, all around the world. There were these pagan temples where you would worship whatever sort of uh, deity. And uh, here in Corinth was just like any other ancient city. They had not just one temple, multiple temples. And these temples were, in a very real way, the kind of the focal point of society. And the things you did centered around what happened at the temple and their gods that they worshipped. And um, the temple actually did a couple things for them in that society. Or there's really two issues that we need to consider as Paul is addressing their question. They apparently had a question, he's addressing it. That was, if you're a first century believer out of Corinth, the reality of temple worship, temple living, uh, is right there. You can't get away from it. It is right in front of you. No matter where you go in the city, those temples are very prominent. People are going to those temples, doing the temple thing. And uh, they have questions that really go along two lines. Number one, how do we deal with attendance to the temple? You think, well, that's easy. Uh, don't go. Well, but it's not always that easy when you've got your neighbor who hasn't yet trusted Christ, and they're getting married, and they're getting married at the temple. And these temples were more than just religious duty. It actually was a central place where people would go for functions. So weddings, funerals, would be, they'd happen at the temple. These temples had vast dining areas with them because that was part of the ritual. Sacrifice an animal, eat the animal, all in the name of the pagan god. So if you had a, a big party, it would often happen at the temple. Homes weren't usually big enough to have great gatherings, so they would go to the big temple area. And uh, what do you do when you're still intertwined with people in society and they're doing their celebration that you identify with, you know, grandma and grandpa's whatever anniversary or uh, so-and-so, um, you know, is getting married or the funeral of somebody that was really important to a family member and it's happening at the temple. What do you do about that? Okay, that's question number one. Question number two does have to do, and we're going to deal with this here, that then the, uh, the different things that were sacrificed, it would have been more than those that worked in the temple could have themselves consumed. Uh, so there was, as part of the temple complex, there was what he calls in chapter 10 the shambles, but there was the, the market where they would actually sell the, the, the foods that were sacrificed to these uh, deities. And so the second question was, what do we do about that? What do we do about this food that's been sacrificed to a pagan god? Do we not eat it? Do we eat it? How should we deal with that? And uh, I want to say those are actually two pretty significant questions. Let me read. This is a quote by uh, Robert Plummer. And uh, Robert Plummer says this after he deals with those two questions. He says, let me just quote this. Though it was obviously wrong to worship a false god, was it wrong to attend a social or civic uh, or civil function in the pagan temple. If your neighbor was getting married, was there anything wrong with attending the ceremony in the pagan temple and then eating the hors d'oeuvres that just happened to have been sacrificed to an idol? Or on a related matter, was it wrong to buy meat from a butcher who first slaughtered the meat in the uh, precincts of the pagan temple? What if he personally had no idea, uh, no problem with eating idol meat, but the practice offended a Christian brother or tempted him to engage in activity that he regarded as forbidden? That's the big question. Okay, this is not just first century. Do you know one of the most um, difficult, 
maybe one of the most complicated aspects of your Christian testimony is how do you relate to different associations out there? And so I'm going to talk about that today because I don't want us to be offensive in our Christianity. Look at verse number one again. Because I think in verse number one, he really gives us uh, the two points that we're going to cover here today. He says, now, as touching things offered unto idols. So apparently they had a question to him. They wrote Paul this question. What do we do about this? Probably just like I explained to you. Uh, how do we deal with going to the temple, not going to the temple, eating things offered to idols, not eating things offered to idols? He says, as we know, this is Paul speaking, that we all have knowledge. And then his big point is knowledge puffeth up but charity edifieth. Now I want to talk along the lines of those two things today, and that is that which puffs up and that which builds up. That which puffs up and that which builds up. Let's first look at that which puffs up, and that's how he starts his argument. That's which puffs up. And I would define this as self-serving arrogance. Self-serving arrogance. So he says, um, knowledge puffs up. If any man think that he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing, yet as he ought to know. And, uh, you know, if you think you get it, you really probably don't. Don't you know that, right? You know that's true. Uh, if you feel like you've kind of figured it out, um, you may not have figured it out as much as you think you have. In fact, we can all tend to think we have things figured out until we realize we don't. And has there, has there ever been something in your life that you thought you had kind of had the whole concept down and then realized there was aspects to that discussion you didn't even know were part of it. And once you were more informed or understood this more fully, you realized, oh, I don't think I understood that thing as well as I thought I did. Think of that new Christian that you've worked with or that you know, or even yourself as a new Christian. And uh, you're trying to just figure out how, like, Christianity works. I can think of people we've discipled over the last number of years. They, they come to faith in Christ and and they're trying to figure out how to do Christianity. And I mean more from like, what do I do and not do? And we're trying to help them think not in terms of just a code of conduct, but it's hard for them not to just immediately assume that. Okay, now I'm a Christian. Here's what I do. Here's what I don't do. They're trying to figure out conduct. And uh, they immediately can draw these conclusions that you're watching thinking, well, that's not bad, but you probably don't know the full breadth of even that, that, that issue and uh, one of my fears, often with a new Christian, is you want them to come up with good convictions, but you want them to understand the foundation under them. Otherwise, they get pushed over in that conviction and uh, honestly fall. And uh, that's not helpful. Uh, so honestly, he says that. He says, no, uh, knowledge puffs up. He said, if any man thinks that he knows anything, in fact, he really probably knows nothing, at least yet as he ought to know. But if any man love God... The same is known of him. But let's just look at the issue that we're dealing with here. Uh, the issue we're dealing with here does have to do with an actual um, food or actual uh, situation of meat offered in sacrifice to an idol. So look at verse number four. He says, As uh, concerning, therefore, the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice unto idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, that there is none other God but one. Uh, for though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as there are be gods many and lords many, but to us there is but one God the Father, of whom are all things, and we uh, in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. His thought is actually fairly simple. 
the thought is fairly simple. He says, there's this question now in the church of Corinth. What do we do about meat sacrificed to an idol? And uh, he says, we all understand. Now, he's talking to those that probably have a little bit broader understanding of even theology than maybe one of the newer believers in the church of Corinth. He says to them, we all understand there's only one God. Uh, and these idols, at least these so-called gods, are really no gods. And so his point he's trying to make is, though in Corinth they might worship whatever deity, and they're worshiping that deity in ignorance as if that deity is real, he's saying, we know that's not real. There is, no, there is no God that they're worshiping in the temple. There's only one God. It's the God of heaven. And uh, when, when, when we say that these things were offered to an idol, well, there is no, that is nothing. So that meat offered to an idol is offered to nothing, offered to actual vanity. He says there's really only one God, and that's the God of heaven. But look what he says, though. He says this is not the whole issue because verse 7, how be it, there is not in every man that knowledge. For some with conscience of the idol unto this hour eat it um, as a thing offered unto an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. So the meat sacrificed to an idol is not really altered, because an idol is not really a god. Okay, so I'm saying that's like they go to the temple with their whatever animal, and they sacrifice it, and they barbecue it, and uh, they're going to eat it. Did anything, like, essentially change about that meat? Well, no, it got cooked, you know, that, that essentially changed it. But um, it's not alive anymore. But uh, the meat itself, the actual DNA of the meat, or it, nothing changed about it. It's just food, okay? It was food before. It's food now. Um, nothing really changed, but... There was an aspect where people thought in the terms of this temple worship that that meat did maybe get some new quality to it. At a minimum, it became associated with what was happening in the temple. And so the question that's asked by who he calls those with a weak conscience is a very legitimate question. Because they're not weak because they think the meat got weird. They're sensitive because they know that they know that, that meat has an association. And uh, so the question has to do with what do we do about meat that has an association? So the fact that they're, like it says in verse 7, some that have a, um, uh, some that are weak in their conscience and it's defiled has more to do with sensitivity, not so much even a lack of training. They're just sensitive to it. Um, you know, I'm sure in Corinth, just like in anywhere else, there were some that were more committed to the pagan religion than others. Some were more casual, some were more committed. And think when people get saved out of both ends of that spectrum, somebody that was more casual in their view of these pagan deities might have been pretty easy for them to dismiss the whole thing, but somebody that was pretty committed to it, it might be harder for them to just dismiss the power of what was happening there. Um, so uh, don't go to chapter 10, but the argument goes 8, 9, and 10. And uh, what Paul's dealing with is how to deal with um, living Christianity in a pagan world. And uh, that applies to our lives most definitely. But in chapter 10, he does say this. Uh, in verse 22, he says this, uh, Behold, um, mm, he says, Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? I'm sorry, let me go to verse 19. Um, what say I then, that the idol is anything? Or that which is offered and sacrificed to idols is anything. But I say, the thing which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to... Some of you turn to it. Do you see the next word there? Devils. And not to God. And I would not 
that ye should have fellowship with devils. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. You cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and of the table of the devils. Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So in chapter 8, he's dealing with an initial part that we're going to talk about today. But this issue of, of idol meat, uh, sacrifices to idols, was deeper than just association. There was actually demonic involvement in all of this. Uh, these pagan temples weren't just a tourist attraction. Uh, there, was, there was a cultic power happening at these temples. And so part of the concern that they were being almost flippant about it, and that's what Paul's rebuking, he's calling them strong, but in, in effect he's really challenging them that they're not thinking right about it, is these pagan temples, there was evil involved in this. Immorality, drugs and alcohol, and of course just the satanic nature, the occultic nature of these temples. But let's not get there. That's not really the point of where we're going today. I want to examine the issue then. Look at verse number 8. So the question is, what about it? Nothing changed in the meat. He says, okay, we'll start with that argument. Look at verse 8. But meat commendeth us not to God. For neither if we eat are we the better, neither if we eat not are we the worse. But take heed, lest by any means this liberty of yours, the liberty of understanding the meat hasn't changed, I can eat it anyway, Beware that this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. That's where he's going with it. He's saying you might have this liberty to eat this meat because you understand nothing's changed about the meat. And he says, but here's the point. You need to be careful that this liberty based on your knowledge doesn't create a stumbling block for somebody else. Let me keep, keep reading. For if a man see thee which has knowledge, sit at meat in the idol's temple, shall not the conscience of him that is weak or not trained yet or new in the faith be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idols? And through thy knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? That's a horror thought. He's saying if you're the stronger one, nothing in your life should lead a weaker one to offend in their conscience and actually stumble. Look at verse 11. He says, And through thy knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. But when ye so sin against the brethren, when ye sin so against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, ye sin against Christ. Wherefore, if meat make my brother to offend. So the actions don't commend us to God. The reality is, okay, uh, what you eat, what you don't eat, doesn't make God more happy with you or not. It's not like you can eat a meal that God's going to go, now I really, I'm, I'm pretty impressed with you now. Um, that's, not even, that's not even how our Christianity plays out. Now, there are, of course, things that can be a problem, but he's saying, you know, eating, not eating, that's not, the real issue is heart issue, what's going on inside of you. It's this knowledge that they're appealing to that actually is making them proud. But I want to take a minute, and I'm going to go into the second point. I want to talk about the difference between associations and essence. Because he's saying to them that the meat hasn't changed in its essence. But the point Paul's making here. And then all the way through is that the meat does gain association. And I want you all to consider the difference between association and essence. Because in your life, as you're trying to figure out how to just navigate culture, uh, your interaction with culture, um, you're going to have to be able to determine what is association, what is essence, and how do I need to relate to both of those things. Think about illegal drugs, like mind-altering illicit drugs. Is that an issue of association or essence? Well, essence. 
it, the essence of the thing is bad. Okay, you talk about like a street drug. Okay, these are bad. Now, do they have bad associations? Sure. But the primary issue with drugs isn't that it's going to make you look like a bad person. It's going to make you a bad person. Okay. So drugs are like an, an essence issue, right? Uh, but what about meat sacrificed to an idol? Well, meat sacrificed to an idol in this sense is not really an essence issue because the meat didn't exactly change. You know, if you could have done a, a scientific study of the meat before and after it was dedicated to the idol, nothing changed in it. So the meat is still meat, but it is an association issue. And the point you've got to see in this passage is that when that meat was sacrificed to an idol, it gained an association that was irrevocable. That association became part and parcel of what that meat was going forward. All right. Um, what about brand names? Think about brand names, like clothing brand names. Are brand names essence or association? Okay, it's more association, right? I mean, I suppose you could have a, whatever. I mean, you could have maybe some essence problems with clothing, you know, sure. You know, maybe this brand is associated with this essentially wrong clothing style. Okay, right. But, um, but actually, what I'm more concerned about is that there are brands that brands, by their nature, are associational. You know, this brand kind of associates itself with this kind of a look or this kind of a crowd or whatever. So we have to determine um, what an association of a thing is. If, it, if it's, it's essentially wrong, if there's something wrong in the essence of the thing, don't touch it. That's easy. The bigger question is, how do we deal with associational qualities that items have? And that's where the discussion plays out right here. What do we do with this meat that now has an association with an idol, even though the meat itself hasn't changed? How do I deal with that? I know it hasn't changed. What if nobody sees me eat the meat? I know there's nothing wrong with the meat. There's only one God I can eat. It's not going to offend my conscience. That's the argument. And Paul says, okay, but what if somebody that knows you do know that that meat was sacrificed to you know, Zeus or whatever, is that that meat is now dedicated to Zeus, and they see you do it, and they're offended. What are you going to do about that? And that's the question. Uh, one last thing, and I'll go into the second point. We're going to come, we're going to circle back to this. I want you to get this down. Associations don't go away because you are ignorant of them. Um, and they don't go away because you ignore them either. In other words, an association that, that, uh, that item carries is there not because of your perception, but because of what that item is associated with. And I think often people like us, or like we, um, we look at items and we are ignorant of the association, or more, probably more to the point, we choose to ignore an association. And I want to challenge you here today, you can't appeal to ignorance. Okay, you've got to understand association. Okay, now, we're going to come back to some of that, okay? So what, what actually, uh, what actually uh, puffs up is this self-serving arrogance. Oh, I get this whole thing. Theologically, I get it, I get it. That meat, nothing. There's no, these pagan temples, they're nothing. It's all just made up. Meat wasn't altered. I can eat that meat. It doesn't faze me. There's only one God in heaven, and I get that. And Paul's point to them is you're being arrogant, you're missing that what you're doing in that is actually harming people. You think you've got it down like you're so strong, like you have knowledge, and you're saying what you're actually doing is you're destroying. Look at verse 11 again. Because verse 11 should scare you. And through thy knowledge shall the weak 
brother perish for whom Christ died? And the answer is, whoa, no. That would be terrible. And uh, you all are in the place of great knowledge. Think of how much you understand about theology, about nuances. You all have the greatest responsibility in your strength to be aware of those who are sensitive. And it's not okay to say, ah, you know, don't worry about it. I understand this issue. If you only understood it like me, you wouldn't, you wouldn't think so hard about it. Whereas a Christian leader says, how is this going to affect that person? So why don't you look at number two. I want you to look at that which builds up. He says, knowledge puffs up. Charity edifies. So what does it mean to have charity as a guide? Look at what he says in verse number three. If any man love God... The same is known of him. And of course, later on in 1 Corinthians, he's going to talk about charity and the importance of charity being a guiding principle in the Christian life. Um, By the love of God comes true understanding. True knowledge consists not in the accumulation of so much information or even in the correctness of one's theology or even in having the right standards, but in the fact he has learned to live in love toward God and man. Uh, knowledge directed Godward is true knowledge. And so I want to look at this issue then from the standpoint of love, not the standpoint of knowledge. Because you look at the situation and think, well, that person shouldn't be so sensitive to it. I need to help them understand not to be sensitive. And you know Paul doesn't argue that way in this passage. He doesn't say you need to help the weak become strong. He says to the strong, be considerate of the weak. And I think we all have to understand that we will, through the course of our Christian leadership, be dealing with those who are just coming to understand the reality of the freedom in Christ. And you're going to always be dealing with people fresh out of Catholicism, fresh out of Islam, fresh out of whatever. And their understanding of how to do Christianity is going to be immature. They're going to think more in terms of code, even though maybe you're growing past code thinking and you're thinking heart religion, and you're trying to teach them heart religion, they've lived their whole lives in code religion. And so they're going to put code over Christianity. And if you are ignorant of that perspective, your arrogance can actually destroy him for whom Christ died. Do you see the power of that? Um, Eating meat does not make someone more or less spiritual. That's what he said there. He said, does meat commend us to God? It doesn't. So that issue really needs to be put under the context of the love for the weaker brother. For someone not to eat, uh, not eat a faith would cause him to sin and separate him from God. Romans 14 is a parallel passage. We could read multiple verses there. But look at Romans. Don't look there. Let me just quote it. Romans 14, 23. And he that doubteth is damned if he eat, because he eateth not of faith. For whatsoever is not of faith is sin. There's a different nuance in both passages, but the point is made that you need to lead your disciple or the one that's looking to you as a leader to live by faith. And any time they stumble in faith, especially because you have set an example that confuses them, you're leading them to sin. If it's not a faith, it's sin. And so as a Christian leader, you have to consider not what I understand about this issue and I get this better than, you know, you need to think, but what do they think about it? Someday, men, when you stand up in a pulpit and you're pastoring a church, your argument can't be, well, I understand that this movie isn't really that bad. You have to consider, but what is this associated with? What are my people going to associate that thing with? 
what is culture at, lar- at large associate that thing with, and you have to live in love toward them. And so look at verse 13, because verse 13 is the conclusion of this first part of the argument. He goes on past this. But verse 13 is the conclusion of this part of the argument. It says, therefore, or wherefore, if meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend. Wow. You know what that is? That's a standard. So Paul basically says, he goes through the argument, he's going he's to say backward of what their thinking was. Their thinking was, Paul, would you help the church understand this isn't that big of a deal? And Paul says, hey, you strong people need to understand this is a big deal. And you, eating things and participating in pagan societal issues is actually causing new believers in your church to stumble. That's not love. You need to think more about what's causing them to stumble. And Paul says, if something I do actually has the risk of causing a weaker brother to offend, I don't want anything to do with it. So Paul says, I would eat no flesh while the world stands, lest I make my brother to offend. Because Paul knew what he eats doesn't make him better to God, not better to God. He says, if that's a negotiable thing, then I'll let it all go. I'll just eat rice the rest of my life. That would be a bummer. So Paul basically says, I would give up anything for the sake of the weaker brother. And uh, I know what happens in Bible college, because I went to Bible college. In Bible college, we have all these great discussions about the standards of the school or the standards of whatever. And, you know, we're going to figure this out. And, well, I don't know if that, that standard seems a little bit extreme. And, and I want you to know that argument, if it starts on that, if the argument starts on the merits of the standard, you're in the wrong place. Period. All discussion about our conduct, the way we relate to society at large, has to start with association. What do they associate it as? What does a new believer associate that thing with? And our issue can't be, I didn't know it meant that. Oh, or whatever. It doesn't really mean that. We do approach associations in those two dangerous ways. Uh, I guess I didn't realize that. Okay, fine, but now you do. Or you just choose to ignore it. And I've been around the block a couple times, and I do feel like often good kids, people like you all, that grew up in good homes and good contexts and good churches, can choose to ignore association because it gets in the way of what you want. And that's the greatest issue. Leadership says what's going to help build them up, not what's going to please me. He says, I will do nothing to offend a brother in Christ. Love is the totality of servanthood. I will give up anything for my brother's best. This is what standards are all about. This is what love is all about. I said it already. I'm going to say it again. I'm done here. Associations don't go away because you ignore them or even if you are ignorant of them. Associations happen both by design and by usage. Brand and clothing styles is by It's by design. So when those clothing designers do what they do, they know what they're doing. And they're trying to create clothing that is associated with a certain whatever, you know, kind of peer group or kind of uh, group. Have you ever been into a mall? And if you look at all the stores, you can tell what kind of store they are. You know, what's, what's in it, it's that kind of lifestyle it's, it's, it's endeavoring to identify with. Okay, you see that. You even see it at Walmart, right? You can tell what are they trying to do with these different sorts of clothing styles and brands. Um, I, I think I mentioned this already. I mentioned Harley's. The Harley-Davidson 
has actually gained an association that has changed some over the years by usage. When Harleys came out in the early 1900s, uh, it was a motorcycle, you know, just used for the kind of army usage and World War I and that kind of stuff. But maybe somebody can help me. There was a movie that came out in like the 1950s. I'm looking at, at Brother Hines. You're not, I'm probably the wrong person, but I think of this like this, I think it was called Rebel Without a Cause, right? Wow, do you know what I'm talking about? Yes, yes. <laughs> yep, all right, there we go. Uh, Pastor Swanson's not here, you're fine. Um, <laughs> But he, he was like this leather jacket, cigarette-smoking rebel riding a, a Harley, I think, right? A Harley motorcycle. And somehow through that era, Harleys kind of got that image of being the rebel, you know? So through the 50s and 60s, like the Fonz. Hey, we're in Milwaukee, right? The Fonz. Oh, man, this is another TV show. That Dr. Jim would know what I'm talking about. Um, the Fonz. That's Milwaukee. He was like the guy that rode the Harley and the leather jacket and so on. You know who the Fonz is, right? Uh, yeah, okay, all right, good. Um, <laughs> so it's kind of rebellious thing, right? Did you know in the last 20 years, actually, Harley's kind of shifted some. Now they appeal more to, like, the, uh, the executive, you know, the guy that can actually afford a Harley, you know? And uh, it's changed a little bit some, but I want you to know the association of Harley happened regardless of what you think about it. It happened because of big things in society. So you can sit there and go, nah, I don't think Harley's mean that. Okay, whatever. What you think doesn't matter. What matters is what does other people think, or what do other people think about it? Okay, last thing, and I, I really do got to be done. Last thing is this. Do you know music is both essence and association? And if you can't recognize both, you're going to get yourself into trouble, and you're going to lead poorly. And I don't want to talk about music. I, don't, I can't do half of what Mr. Van can do. But you know, there's some music that is essentially bad, right? And there's some music that's associationally bad in what happens to Christian people like you all. You, you, you choose to ignore the associational aspect of it and think, well, it's not that big of a deal. And in fact, it might be a really big deal. Might be a really big deal. Well, it's not that big of a deal. In fact, you know, as long as people don't see me listening to this, I don't think the music's wrong. Is that love? At a minimum, it's risky. You know, pastor, when you're in your study and you're listening to the music that you don't think is really that wrong, and then your deacon comes in and goes, whoa, preacher, what are you listening to? You just killed him. So you need to think what really is going to build up, not what's going to tear down. So a real servant actually is self-limiting beyond their knowledge. Do you know there's a lot of things Pastor McGeldon doesn't do because of the association, like I don't know if he would anymore, but our baseball field used to be called Miller Park. He would never go to a game at Miller Park, even though Pastor knows he's not going to go there to drink a beer. But he just wouldn't go there because he has knowledge. And actually, his knowledge could have maybe led him to say, well, it's not that big of a deal. But he said, no, I'm more concerned about somebody seeing me going there. Do you get it? Wow, this is important. I think what happens is we, we argue often based on essence of the thing, like music. Well, essentially, it's not that bad. It's good music. And we're like forgetting the fact it's associated with things that actually could hurt people. All right. Is there anything that's association neutral? My answer is yes and no. Sure, there are some things that, you know. Um, but really, no, everything has some association. So part of the, part of the, the, the trick in Christian living and leadership is being honest 
about association because our flesh wants to push us to ignore. And leadership says, I'm not going to ignore it. I'm going to, because I don't want to give up meat. I like eating meat. Flesh? Man, barbecue? Of course. But Paul says, I don't want anybody to offend, even if it means I go vegan. All right. Uh, let me tell you a quick story. Um, when uh, when uh, Judson was just a wee pup, um, I had a pair of shoes that, this is a brand that's probably not even around anymore, but they were called Doc Martens. Maybe you could probably still buy Doc Martens. I don't know. But these are called Doc Martin shoes. Okay. Doc Martens. So um, I had a pair of Doc Martens. They were actually given to me as a gift. I remember when I got them thinking, hmm, should I wear Doc Martens? I don't know. But they were, they were expensive. You know, if anything, they were kind of trendy. I thought, oh, I don't know. They're kind of cool. So I remember wearing these Doc Martens. I was youth pastor here. And one of my teens said, whoa, Pastor Schultz, you got Doc Martens. Oh, I probably called him Mr. Schultz. And here's what concerned me about it, is The one who knew my shoes was one of the ones that I was concerned about spiritually. And at first I'm thinking, wow, look at this. I'm kind of, he doesn't think I'm an old stuffy nerd. He thinks I'm kind of cool. See, I'm reaching him. And uh, that should have triggered something in me. In fact, I think it did. So I remember um, my laces broke. You know, laces break on shoes. I thought, well, I need to get new laces for my Doc Martens shoes. Have you ever heard of Doc Martens? Okay, anyway, so I had to get new laces. So I loaded Judson up in the car seat. He was maybe a year old or so. And uh, we uh, went off on the hunt for laces for my Doc Martens. And I remember we went to Payless Shoe Source, because that's where you go to get cheap stuff. And I looked at their laces, and I'm like, Dad, these just aren't right. Like, they don't really work with just the overall look of the shoes. So, okay, so fine. Then Judson and I drove down to Southridge Mall. I thought, well, I'll probably find something here. So here I'm pushing my son, you know, through the mall and uh, noticing all of just the mall stuff. I'm like, yeah, I'm just feeling yucky, you know. You should feel yucky when you're in a mall, okay? I'm feeling yucky. So I'm like, oh, I'll show you. So I go to this department store. I said, hey, do you sell uh, shoelaces for Doc Martens? But it's like even as I noticed the part of that department store I had to go to, to find laces for those shoes. I'm like, oh, I don't know. It felt funny about it. No, they don't have it. And okay, so then she sent me down to this other store. And the store is called Journey or Journeys. And I don't know if they have them anymore. But so I went to this store and I walked in that store and went, I don't think I should be in this store. And uh, it was just yucky. It was yucky. And so I, I go up and you know, I push Judson up to the counter. I felt like I was bringing him to Molac. And um, <laughs> push him up to the counter. And I said, do you have laces for, for Doc Martin shoes? I said, sure. Now, the girl behind the counter was that goth look, you know, like really pale skin, black lipstick, black clothes. And she's like, yes, yes, we have those shoes. <laughs> uh, so she goes to the back, comes out and gets them. They're like $13, you know. And I'm like, oh, man. Oh. And while we're in there and I'm waiting for <laughs> the vampire girl to come back up. Um, I, I look at Judson, he's sitting in the uh, stroller, and they've got in the corner this, this monitor, and it's playing like music videos, you know, and Judson's like, <laughs> just watching the video, and I'm like, oh, Jud, no, don't look at that. Turn him around, and I'm like, no, that's, that's naughty, don't do that. And uh, she brings the laces out, this, ve this not vegan, I'm sorry, this uh, vampire girl, she might have been vegan too, I don't know, but this vampire girl, and, uh, and then I buy the laces, and I go in my, I go in my pocket to pick, take out a tract. Now, I don't know. I'll just tell you how I felt at that moment. I thought, I can't give this girl a tract. I shouldn't even be in this store. What am I doing in here? Why am I buying their wares? And actually, I didn't give her a tract. 
I had no power at that point. I remember walking out of that store. I felt soiled. I felt like, what am I even doing in here? And uh, put the laces on the shoes, lie about them, I don't know, and brought them to Goodwill the next day. Um, do you know what's important about that story? What's important about the story is those shoes. You know, I, I, here's what I did over the months prior. I thought, well, they're just leather. It's just rubber. It's just stitching. You know, whatever. It's just shoes. They're good shoes. They're high-quality shoes. You know, come on. You can't fault me for having nice, good, quality shoes. But what I was doing is living ignorant to an association that those shoes had outside of me. And it wasn't until I got honest about what those shoes meant that I was willing to get rid of them. And uh, I want to challenge you. I don't want to supply every answer to every question as I can, but I want to give you a framework. The framework toward how to approach society and societal issues is not, do you understand the nuance of it enough so you can get away with it? Or do you understand the nuance of it enough that you say, I don't want to touch it? And Christian leadership is willing to give up if it's going to hurt others. Love, or standards, has to be grounded in honest assessment. And uh, I, am, I am very burdened for you all as leaders that you approach society at large and stuff of society based on honest assessment of association. And Paul's argument here is he said that meat is affected. Maybe not the essence of it, but the association is. And if meat's going to make my brother to offend, I'm not going to touch it as long as the world stands. God, I don't want to make my brother to offend. That's the one who Christ died for. All right, let's pray about it. Lord, I ask that you would help our students here as they try and navigate uh, questions and issues uh, related to just associations. And Lord, I know there is no way that at this, uh, at this point we could talk about every potential issue. But I do know that every student in here is going to have to deal with a multitude of issues in their life. I pray that we be honest about association and have enough love for others that we don't say, well, it's okay, I get it. But we say, I get it, and I'm giving it up. And the Lord, make us those who are marked by love. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.